0: Welcome to the Battlefest podcast. The place to be to catch up on all debates and discussions from the Battle of Ideas Festival 2021. The following debate is called, Is the NHS Fit for Purpose? In the chair
1: is Dave Clements.
2: Right Okay. Welcome, everybody. Um, My name's Dave Clements, and the name of this session is, is, Is the NHS Fit for Purpose? So, just to introduce you to this session... Um, The question is the NHS fit for purpose raises all sorts of questions and I'm sure the speakers will will cover various aspects of that Um, from the response to COVID to uh, the backlog that's resulted from lockdown to um, was the NHS in crisis before COVID. There's all sorts of areas that, that may be covered in terms of the international comparisons with other systems. Is it too bureaucratic? Does it need reform? Is it already over-reformed? But I think the, the key thing is that it's important to be having a debate about the NHS. Uh, I think some people describe it as a national religion. So um, today uh, we'll be blaspheming, blaspheming rather against that religion um, by having a debate about it. I will first of all introduce the speakers in the order in which I will speak. We have Professor Carol Sakura on my immediate right. He's Chief Medical Officer at Rutherford Health founder of Cancer Partners UK, author of Treatment of Cancer, and honorary consultant oncologist at Hammersmith Hospital, um, but most impressive of all, he has nearly 330,000 Twitter followers. Um, <laughs> on my immediate left, we have Parth Patel. He's a research fellow at the IPPR, a junior doctor, and he writes The Lancet, The BMJ, The Independent, and Financial Times. On my far right is Dolly Tice, uh, who is a PhD student um, at the MRC Epidemiology Unit at the University of Cambridge. And then on my far left is Christopher Snowden, who's Head of Lifestyle Economics at the Institute of Economic Affairs, editor of Nanny State Index, and author of Selfishness, Greed, and Capitalism.
3: So if I can ask uh, Professor Carol Sakura to. Thanks very much, great to be here. In a debate, you have to take the measure of the audience. When the people come in with fuck the police on their bag, one young lady is, you know what the audience is going to be like. You're left-leaning. I understand. (laughs) Look, I've been a consultant for 42 years. I was very young when I started. I'm now very old. The oldest person in the room, I always am. And there's no doubt I've seen the NHS from the very beginning. I was born a week before the NHS came into being, so you can work out my age. There are five lovely things about the NHS and there are five disastrous things. It's not fit for purpose in its current format. What do we like about it? It's free, fantastic. It's not really free, you're paying for it, but it's free at the point of use. The immortal words of Bevan, free at the point of care, based on medical need, not ability to pay. So, wonderful. It's universal. But then all European systems are universal. It doesn't, you don't need to have a tax-funded system only to be universal. It's inclusive. No questions asked. No one talks money. No credit cards are needed when you pitch up in the emergency room. Lovely. It integrates social care or has the potential to integrate social care, but does it? Look at the Manchester Devolution Project called Devo DevoMank. A lot of publicity five years ago, all gone, nothing there. Millions, have spent. Millions were spent on the PR about it and nothing to show for it. Uh, Then we've got a well-trained workforce, and that's definitely the case. That's not the NHS, that's the universities, including the great University of Buckingham. And there's no doubt that the universities have driven medical education both for undergraduates and for postgraduates for research, and Dolly is one of the students of that system. So these are the good things with a few little stings in the tail. What about the bad things? Number one, appalling access. You try and get a GP appointment. You wait six weeks, the phone doesn't get answered. Where I live, very affluent area, Beaconsfield up the A40, halfway to Oxford, you have to write down on a website what's wrong with you before you get the appointment. Then a grumpy receptionist phones you up to tell you, no service industry in the world does this sort of treatment. Old ladies can't use the internet, many of them. They're struggling to get an appointment. You just can't phone for an appointment. It's, you know, all the targets are being broken. The two-week wait for cancer. This is before COVID. Of course, COVID has really thrown it all out of the window. And it's not got back to normal yet. So the num- number two, other than the appalling access, is huge capacity lack. And that's what COVID shows. All the metrics across Europe show that Britain has done the worst out of COVID simply because the hospitals don't have the capacity. They had to stop everything once COVID came. It became a national COVID service. And the backlog is 5.6 million waiting. I suspect it's nearer 10 million, but it's covered up. It's overly bureaucratic, there's no doubt it's got more bureaucratic. There are 1.4 million workers in the health system, uh, 131,000 doctors, and you look at the new jobs being advertised. Director of Design Quality, one hundred fifteen thousand a year. Nice if you can get it. Um, De- Deputy Director of People. What's this person going to do? Count the people in the workforce, and then forty-two new management posts with salaries up to two seventy k. What this is industrial salaries. To, to, to start work at nine, go home at five, and these people are going to be the integrated care system leaders. It, it's just not feasible. They have no healthcare knowledge and move forward. The fourth thing is it's politically charged. Everything you do has political consequences. As one review once said, if Florence Nightingale walked to the wards and bedpans dropped, the the echo would reverberate round here in Westminster. It's crazy to have that sort of political system. I was on the trust board of the local hospitals. There are three, Amersham, Aylesbury, Stoke Mandeville and Wickham. They have the money to run one hospital decently. If you were logical, you get an estate agent to value, sell the two most that you get most money for, and build a decent hospital. Uh, and yet it can't happen. And when we had a strategy day for it, what happens? They hire a coach who talks about equality and diversity all day. It doesn't address the real key problem. And then, I guess... When you look at the reviews that have gone, on, 23, twenty-three reviews in my time as a consultant. Another one is coming from Sir Gordon Messenger, Chief of Staff, a general. I and mean, what the hell does he know about healthcare? For God's sake, it's ludicrous. And then the final point I'd make: the fifth bad thing about it. It's grossly inequitable. Some of my opponents may try and sell only a public funded system can be equitable. Look at Vodafone, look at Tesco, look at Ryanair. They don't care what your colour, your creed, your income level. They just want you to buy a ticket, buy some baked beans or buy a phone, mobile phone. Poor people have mobile phones. There's no problem. Even people selling the big issue have a mobile phone in many cases. So we've got a problem here. And the problem is not soluble by ideology it's not soluble by the left or the right we've got to make it a practical way forward and you know it's cheap to talk about what you're going to do it's much more difficult to implement it what covid has shown is that the politicians couldn't run a piss up in a brewery i think everyone agrees on that it doesn't matter whether they're left or right and so what we've got to do with the nhs is take it away from the politicians it's a service that's what we need it's a consumer service if you can't get into it at the start you'll never get decent service thank you very much
2: Perth.
4: Thanks. Hello, everyone. Hi, I'm Perth. Um So is the NHS fit for purpose is the, is the question. Um, and I might agree with Carol with sort of the, at a high level that I don't think the NHS is fit for purpose. Um, but that's because I think the purpose has changed. Uh, and that's, it's clear, but when the NHS was set up to what the NHS looks like now, it's dealing with a whole different kettle of fish. Uh, people live a lot longer they get a lot more unwell by virtue of that and they get diseases that don't kill them um, in addition to this demographic changes in an epidemiological one as well people get quite different diseases now it used to be you get a lot more infections we're in the middle of a pandemic but still most people get non-infectious diseases these are very different to treat um, and they require a very different type of health care um, and in that sense there's a pressure on the institution or the institutions that make up the NHS. That means they are no longer fit for purpose to be able to provide the type of care that a healthcare service should be able to do. And we're seeing that manifest today. There's an access problem, as Carol just described. It's pretty hard to, to get uh, care you want, whether it's seeing senior GP or a hip operation or a cataract operation. And it's grossly unequal. We talked about Beaconsfield. It's about three times as long in Sunderland. Um, and there's a clear correlation there with deprivation. There's a quality problem. Um, the outcomes in the NHS not bad compared to other healthcare systems, but they're not great either. And particularly bad in some areas at cancer. We've been lagging behind for quite a period of time, um, and there's something going on there. And then there's a sustainability problem. How do we keep funding this healthcare? service and how do we organise healthcare if we've just got an inexorable rise in demand going and going and going? So in that sense, I don't think the NHS is fit for purpose. But rather than spending however minutes I've got left trying to talk about that some more, the more interesting question is, well, what are we going to do about it? I think often the debate goes something a bit like this. The NHS is not fit for purpose and therefore we have to think about how the NHS is funded, how is it financed. That's somewhat non sequitur, in my opinion, it's a pretty sort of parochial tunnel vision focus on on healthcare. We've got this access and this quality problem, but the solution is only how we fund it. That's not quite right. It's certainly part of the conversation, but it's not the whole thing. I'm just gonna zoom out a little bit and think about, okay, well, what is healthcare? Um, and broadly, in terms of what, A healthcare service should be doing and how it was organized. We can think about it from sort of a demand side and a supply side. The demand side is sort of simply put what are we willing to do as a society to try and reduce the incidence of disease? We're saying everyone's getting a lot more unwell, partly because they live older and partly because of all these other things. Are we willing to do anything to try and reduce the incidence of that disease? Because there's trade-offs. There's always a trade-off involved. A very extreme example is the past 18 months. We were trying to reduce the incidence of COVID-19. Took very extreme measures to try and do that. I guess on the other end of the spectrum. Are you willing to put a handrail in mum or grandma's house to stop her falling down the stairs and breaking her hip? These are all things we could do to reduce the incidence of disease, to reduce the demand on the healthcare system. I think it's part of the debate. I'm not going to focus on that too much. It might be something we want to come back to in the Q&A. The other side is the supply side, so that's back to the NHS, the organisations that make up this behemoth, the NHS. I think any conversation in terms of how you organise healthcare to deliver healthcare has to start from a normative value statement. Carol's saying it's not left and right. It's not left and right, but there's no objective right or wrong in terms of how you deliver healthcare. There has to be a normative value statement. So the one I'm gonna start with is anyone who becomes unwell should be able to access healthcare they need, if they so wish, um, regardless of their means or ability to pay for or other other factors that might determine it. Um, That's a normative value statement. You might have a different one, in which case you'll end up with quite a different system to the one that we have now. But I'm probably in the majority, in a democratic majority, in terms of that statement I've made. So then, okay, we've got that we've got this sort of black box NHS institution, um, which is actually made up of hundreds of organizations. Um, We very much focus on what we're putting into it. So we've got the NHS, and okay, well, we've got a problem here in terms of access and quality. Let's think about what we're putting into it, the amount of money we're gonna put into it, the number of doctors, the number of nurses, the number of CT scanners, like all these things are important. Some of them, all of them are probably necessary, Um, but they're not sufficient. And maybe we need to focus a bit more on the black box that is the NHS and how that's organised. And can we do that in a better way to make it fit for purpose for modern Britain's health problems? And there's two things I probably want to put out there um, that I think might be interesting to discuss. And it's about centralisation and accountability. These are the two things that, for me, stand out in terms of how the NHS is organised and how it could be improved. It's a highly, highly centralised system, compared to healthcare systems in other Western liberal democracies, it's more centralised than the rest of them. That's a problem, because you're assuming that there's a one-size-fits-all approach to delivering healthcare. We know that's not the case. Different populations and parts of the countries experience very different health problems. So maybe running it all out of London isn't the right way to do it. Um, And kind of linked to that is this question about accountability. There is statutory accountability built into the way we deliver care the law protects patients. If you harm patients, you're gonna get done in the courts, except there's no real democratic accountability. There's no real way for patients, people, politicians even, to get involved in the NHS and how it's organized. Maybe it's a political football, but how much control do elected representatives actually have over how the NHS is run? The answer is not very many. I'm not suggesting the answer is giving the cabinet more power, but parliament, could I play a bit of bigger role? Local government certainly could play a bigger role. And people, everyday citizens, could play a bigger role if they so wanted to. And there are ways to improve democratic accountability to NHS. So that's probably what I'll end on, um, because I'm probably going to get shown a card. Um, but thanks. Thank you, <laughs> <laughs> um,
5: Dolly. Thank you very much. Um, good morning. Um, it's very lovely to be. What a lovely day as well. I feel like I feel terrible that we're inside, but at least we get a good view here. Um, I, I feel like my what I'm going to say follows on very nicely from, uh, from uh, Carol and Path. Um, but I wanted to first start with some questions, and I, I always find it rather rude that I'm looking at my phone, but I promise they're notes. I'm not. They're texting everyone. Um, so How many of you, you raise your hand, how many of you have an idea about how to improve the NHS? One idea, even. Okay, good. Um, How many of you have had to try and interpret or read a government policy document related to the NHS? Okay, interesting. Um, How many of you had, for, for whatever reason, had to convert that into action? or try and translate that into action okay good i'm going to be coming back to <laughs> you guys um how many of you are or have been active in any kind of policy making related to the nhs so have you been a councillor or are you a councillor have you stu- yes there we go and uh, on boards trust boards ccgs well, anything the chair, like- PPG. brilliant 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 i'll be coming to you as well <laughs> um and who here feels like it's not easy to understand how the NHS actually works? If someone, if someone were to ask you, <laughs> and what about how easy it is to understand how government policy making works? Not, this is how, not finding it easy if you raise your hand. Okay, this is, this is good because I want, um, I'm asking these questions because I would love to bring these uh, out in the discussion. Um, I actually have to refer to a, a, an article that Parth wrote yesterday, or published yesterday, uh, where he made the point that it is culture, not structure, that ultimately determines the quality of health system integration. And I don't know how many of you have read similar articles, but someone talking about NHS restructuring, it is the most common problem again and again that we see people providing their ideas. They may be brilliant, um, but we see it again and again. And having chatted to someone this week who's on their fourth government restructure-sparked move <laughs> in charge of a team, so I, I really um, uh, empathise with what she faces at the moment, I, can, I can agree, cannot agree more with the idea that it is culture rather than structure. But what does culture mean and look like in practice? Um, And this is where it relates to my PhD research. So my PhD is twofold. The first part was trying to understand why, in the specific case of obesity policy, have we had 30 years of government policy, but we haven't actually tackled the issue? I stood back and thought, we keep you know, publishing research on what should be done, but why is it that we've had 30 years of government policies and they haven't led anywhere? So, uh, and I'll touch upon the findings in a bit. And the second part was stepping back going, okay, we've had 14 government strategies on obesity in the last 30 years, how does one come about? What are the, what are the conditions for meaningful policy change? Um, how do we uncover the black box of government policy making? which then led to asking some very fundamental questions like, what is policy? How does government policy making actually work? How do things like the NHS work? And my word, do you end up in quite (laughs) a pickle. Um, And I want to relate back to some things that um, uh, Professor Sokora said about uh, DevoMank, Um, the fact that we had all of this money towards something like that, where has it gone? How many reviews, government reviews are published and what's actually changed with those? The leader of people position that comes up, what even is that and what's gonna happen with it? Um, And the practical way forward, which you touched upon, much more difficult to implement. Um, But I also wouldn't agree on the point about politicians not being able to uh, run organize a biz up. Uh, There are many other factors about why um, I think politicians don't necessarily or don't appear to be able to do policy making well. And that's really what I'm trying to uncover with my research. But essentially, we can all have the best ideas. Um, But if they're unlikely to translate into meaningful change, um, then how can we really tackle these issues? We'll be here again next year. We'll be here again saying the same thing the year after that and many years after that. So my ambition with my work is to open up policymaking processes so that we can all understand them more easily and thus become more active in them. So I really want to kind of pose the question back to you of what are the ways that you feel that uh, are barriers to you being involved, barriers to you experiencing change particularly those who have been uh, first hand experience and uh, just in terms of my research having analysed these kind of almost 700 government policies over the past um, 30 years, finding that they are largely proposed in a way that's unlikely to lead to their implementation. So they're not proposed with basic information like who's responsible for seeing it through? You know, how much does it cost? What's the time frame? Is there going to be an evaluation or monitoring plan? Very basic pieces of information are not proposed with government policy. So instead of saying, I've got a better idea or you, you know, are rubbish, how can we together facilitate policy implementation and be part of that and help each other ask basic questions because I think part of that culture is having to sound like you know uh, how it all works when actually it's very, very useful to ask questions like what is policy, how does the NHS work, and how can I play a role? So breaking down that uh, stigma related to sounding or fear of sounding stupid by asking those questions, I hope we can bring that out in the discussion today. Thank you.
2: Thank you very much, (laughs) Dolly.
6: Thank you, good morning. Um, I don't exaggerate when I say this, but I have never been more embarrassed to be British than during the opening ceremony of the 2012 Olympics, which many of you want to see. Uh, It's specifically the uh, part of uh, Danny Ball's idiosyncratic version of British history that uh, climaxes with a bunch of nurses jumping up and down on beds in a way that implies that the British invented hospitals followed by the words, or the letters, NHS, across the entire stadium, and photographed from above from a drone or a helicopter or something. Um, And the rest of the world looking on, wondering what the hell this meant. And the the vanity and parochialism of somebody in this country just to assume that the rest of the world would have even heard of the NHS, let alone admired it. But that is very common. You may have seen the, uh, the, the survey that came out only a few weeks ago asking people what they're most proud of in Britain. And the creation of the NHS was at the top of it. It was above you know, standing alone against Hitler in 1940. It was, it was above every invention, every military... Everything. It's the thing we are most proud of. Whereas, uh, objectively, it's certainly one of the things we should be most embarrassed about, if not ashamed by, um, because it is a very suboptimal service, Um, and yet so many people in this country have shockingly little curiosity about how other countries might do it with the sole exception of America, and they don't have a very good idea of what actually happens in America. No one seems to be very interested in how they do it in France, or Switzerland, or the Netherlands or anywhere else where they all have universal healthcare Um, but they don't have the state running everything and the consequence of the NHS's epic mismanagement is we we have half as many hospital beds as the EU average, half as many, and that's been a conscious decision over a period of decades to to get rid of them. We have uh, 2.8 doctors per thousand people, whereas the EU average is 3.8, so we have about 30% fewer doctors than the EU average, and the EU obviously includes a lot of countries that are not, not particularly rich or large. So we have far fewer beds and doctors than comparable countries. These are obviously the, you know, pretty fundamental to having a healthcare system, is having some doctors and some beds in the hospitals. Um, and this is not because of underfunding, as people often say. Last year, we spent £269 billion on healthcare, the vast majority, obviously, on the NHS. Of course, that was more than usual because of COVID, but the year before, it was £225 billion. Colossal sum of money, 10.3% of GDP. Uh, it's only going to go up over time. Uh, And that, again, is more than than most European countries. In fact, only four EU countries in 2019 spent more than us as a percentage of GDP. Despite that, we have worse cancer outcomes. Generally speaking, we tend to have longer uh, waiting lists. We have fewer CT scanners, fewer MRI units, than the OECD average. We have a winter crisis every year. My colleague, Christine Nemitz, was trying to find out if other countries have a winter crisis, looking through their newspapers. And you can't find anything comparable in the rest of Europe to a winter crisis because they have more beds and more intensive care beds. It was, I was shocked to find that we only had 4,000 intensive care beds at the start of this pandemic. Then I read a story from, from India uh, when they had their, their big outbreak, saying that in Delhi alone they had 5,000. Uh, intensive care beds. We are short of so much, where's the money going? That's what I want to know, and it's been kind of hinted at already by, by some of the other speakers. It's a centralized system, we pay way too, too many people way too much money. Um, And if you slag off the NHS, people say, oh, you just want to privatise it. Well, yes, I do. Of course I want to privatise it. How else are you going to deal with the core problem of the NHS, which is there's no price mechanism, there's no way of really measuring supply and demand, you have no way of paying people the right amount, so lots of people get paid too little, lots of people get paid too much. There's no meaningful competition, and therefore there's no meaningful choice. If you want to have a patient-centred healthcare system, um, uh, rather than a a management-centred healthcare system, you have to privatise it. There's no reason to have hospitals run by the state. We, you can have one of two models which the common across Europe. Either you can have the government paying for everybody's healthcare and private providers provide it, or you can have most people take out insurance and people who can't afford insurance get their healthcare paid by the, by the government. I'm not that bothered about which of those two systems we use. The important thing is that the healthcare isn't provided by the state, because it's not very good at doing it and it doesn't provide any competition and it tends to become self-serving. Um, and, th- and therefore wasteful if not actively corrupt and there is a remarkable amount of, of corruption within the, the NHS um, itself anyway um, if it's so great why do we have such low expectations of it? Why, why do people Praise the NHS for doing the most basic things that healthcare systems should be doing. Oh, the NHS saved my life. Well, that's what it's supposed to do. The NHS also kills a lot of people. We don't hear from those people. There's a survivor bias to these to, to these animals. People, people talk about, oh, I was born in an NHS hospital. Where, where, where do they think other people are born, if not, if not hospitals? On, on, on kitchen tables in yeah, 2021. 20, um, people have really low expectations of it when, when it comes down to it. People are quite pleased to be seen within four hours, for an emergency, for a possibly life-threatening emergency. In in ANA, and very large numbers of people aren't even seen within that time frame. It's a really poor system, particularly for the amount of money we keep funneling at it. Centralized reforms haven't worked, they never will work, the whole thing is too big for any one politician to even understand, let alone meaningfully reform. We need to do something that most of the rest of the civilized world has done, and that is to get the state out of actually providing the health care. In the same way we get the state out of providing food to us, but we do give people money so that they can buy food.
7: Okay, uh, thank
2: you very much. Uh, thank you, speakers. Now, I'm going to go straight out. There's all sorts of issues that have been thrown up already. If you want to... Um, change the NHS? Does that mean you want to re- privatise it? Um, no one's mentioned integration yet. Like, there's another session on at the moment about social care. If you, integ- if you integrate it, does it become more bureaucratic? Or is that how you, you organise it? Is that, is that a better way of doing it? Um, there's been discussions about culture and structure, uh, about reducing demand, um, or does that let the NHS off the hook if you reduce demand? Shouldn't you be increasing <coughs> supply? Um, so these are the sort of questions that might... Um, come up. I just
8: wanted to ask two very naive questions to the, to the panel. First of all, um, does the NHS actually exist uh, other than a subject as a subject of rhetoric, a brand, a turn at the Olympic ceremony? Does it actually exist, And if so, in what sense? Because the, the basic statutes that define its existence, and the obligation to provide it, those wordings have been tweaked. At the very basic level, it breaks down into bodies belonging to four nations, uh, and those break down further. Um, So it's interesting to ask whether the NHS exists, and if so, in what sense. The other question is, is, assuming the NHS isn't fit for purpose, has it it ever been, and if so, when? Could it be uh, in the absence of a very settled political situation? And I ask that because the BBC in the 1960s ran a programme on the 20th anniversary of the NHS, which was completely damning, and said it's in crisis, it's apocalyptic, can't be sustained, there's crises all the time, and you watch it now and it's utterly bizarre. It makes you wonder, when was the NHS not in crisis. No, none of this, by the way, is to damn the NHS or say it shouldn't exist, I'm, I'm, I just think it's worth asking these questions. problem with the
9: NHS, people say it's too large, it's too bureaucratic, which is fair enough. What is the way forward? You can go for the internal market mechanism, which on the internal market mechanism you probably need more managers, not fewer managers. Uh, and and, and uh, if, I mean, if you look at the history, it's, it's gone from on the one hand, oh, we'll make the GPs, the uh, gatekeepers, we'll do it that way, we'll try and get the market mechanism. You can try and do everything centrally, that doesn't work. As far as yeah, I think your point about actually we spend more on the NHS spending GDP, as far as I can see that's not actually the case. There are some places that do seem to do very well, Singapore is an example, but um, in that case I suspect it's going to be the young, um, uh, the, the young demographic. But have we got the problem that uh, there is always going to be rationing of demand and unless you, you either ration demand by uh, what can you afford to pay for or... In fact America I think pays um, um, and the state, the state pays as much as we do towards the NHS and you have um, insurance on top of that. Alternatively you have some way of trying to manage it and what is the best way of managing everything's being tried I'm not sure what's the best thing thoughts anyone? Okay right at the back in the middle please.
7: <laughs> Thank you I wanted to um, see if I could push our panel a bit back to some of the first principles of the healthcare system sometimes the technical aspects of talking about health system actually end up in a conversation about public procurement, the kinds of services that are being offered, where I think the substantive conversation really is do we still believe that it's important to have cradle to grave service? And if so, does that mean that what happens outside of a medical institution is the responsibility of a healthcare service?
4: So I just have a couple of questions. Uh, Taking into consideration that 30% of the population is obese, and that 75% of all cancer cases happen due to smoking and drinking. How can the NHS possibly ensure that the public is paying taxes to help people in need and not to subsidize lack of personal responsibility and unhealthy lifestyle choices? To what extent should people with uh, self-induced medical issues be entitled to free health care?
2: Thank you. And just next to you, please.
10: I wanted to... Um, there's a couple of things on my mind uh, from what come up. One that's not so much addressed is uh, demoralisation. And um, I think well, in May there were 430,000 uh, days lost through uh, sickness, quite high in the NHS. It's high partly because of burnout, people have talked a lot about, uh, but it was high before. You know, before, currently people are off often... Uh, shielding or um, uh, nervous of going back to work, uh, but before they were off with back pain. This astonishing amount of back pain uh, in the NHS, um, and I think what it really points to is a kind of a, a demoralisation. It's an amazing amount of demoralisation uh, because the, the the driving sense of what uh, what good we're doing uh, is is so kind of. but it's not felt by the people that are doing it. They they feel kind of traduced and uh, diminished largely. And I I don't think that's necessarily different from wider society, but it seems quite concentrated. Then the other question I'm I'm interested in too would be the, uh, you know, what was the Kalman kind of um, uh, 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 preventative medicine? What was the impact of that in terms of creating demand? And was that entirely a a good uh, transition that the NHS uh, moved so far in the direction of uh, preventative medicine?
2: Thank you very much. I'll I'll come back to the panel and then I'll go back out again.
10: Yes,
6: uh, thank you for all those. Um, To your point about the the internal market and reform, the internal market has totally failed and it's probably made things worse in, in many respects and it's certainly allowed a lot of uh, possibilities for fraud and, and corruption of various forms. What we need is a, just a normal, external market. We just need a market. so <laughs> a proper market in, in healthcare. Um, is, is all that's really gonna work? Um, on the, the the medics themselves, you know, I wanna make it clear that I am not having a go at the doctors and nurses in the NHS, the vast majority of whom are you know, really very good and they work incredibly hard. Junior doctors work ridiculous and dangerously long hours because we haven't got enough doctors. Um, and it, if it wasn't for the kind of goodwill of a lot of the staff, the NHS would be even worse than it is. But they're stuck in a system that is unreformable, even in, in quite small ways. When I hear, hear from uh, medics, you know, they they see a common sense solution to something, and they, they they can't implement it. And eventually, as soon as they've got enough money to retire, they get out. My my aunt uh, retired a few years ago. She was a district nurse, and uh, the. The final straw for her was when they said that the nurses couldn't make toast. It was a health and safety issue. And she just thought, "Yeah, I don't need this anymore. It was kind of the, as I say, it was a a last of many things that they were just pushing on people. So the staff, you know, the staff complain about the NHS more than the patients. You know, this is the thing. And also, as I kind of alluded to before, they don't get paid the right amount of money. Um, And they don't want to go on strike because it's obviously really unpopular and and, and life-threatening. But, because there isn't a proper market again. They, they, they can't actually bid, they can't offer to take their, their labor elsewhere most of the time. There's obviously a few private hospitals, but not enough really to, for meaningful uh, labor market competition. And then you have loads of people that, that Carol mentioned who have paid vastly too much money and would never be able to get £270,000 a year for being a diversity coordinator in the private sector, because the private sector doesn't really need them. Um, and finally, to my friend at the back did you say 70% of cancers caused by smoking and drinking, or seven? Because I think it's nearer seven than 70. Um, and, I mean, you're, you're giving the kind of line that the government would like everyone to go along with, which is basically, it's a patient's fault. It's a public's fault. If they weren't so unhealthy, then this health service will work fantastically well. <laughs> um, and uh, Boris Johnson kind of got away with that during COVID, because he suddenly blamed everyone for being obese when, when they, they finally found a link between obesity and COVID, having failed to find one with smoking and, and drinking, which public health, like I think it was very disappointing not to find. No, it's not true. I mean, when I was growing up, the, the line was that one in three people get a cancer in their lifetimes. The current Cancer Research UK advert says one in two people get cancer in their lifetime. I don't deny that. But that's because people are getting older. Over that time, the number of people smoking has, has plummeted. Uh, these are diseases of, of old age. We are not facing obesity or smoking or a drinking time bomb. We are facing an old age time bomb. And we're not trying to blame fatties for this is really not getting to grips with the core problem, which is not just facing us, but every developed healthcare system, which is people are living far too long and they're getting really ill, and we're, we're running out of working age people to, to put money into the pot. What are we going to do about this? It's not just healthcare, it's also pensions. That's the real kind of medium to long term threat facing the public finances. It's not people you know, drinking Coca Cola. Or, um, or smoking
3: cigarettes. Thank you, Carol. So the existentialist question that you just addressed about the NHS, of course it exists, but it exists with great variability. Look, if one of you collapsed with a heart attack in the middle of the floor, please don't try it. An ambulance would be here within eight minutes. The guys will be on, well, girls will be well-trained. They'll have an ECG. They'll be able to transmit it to St. Thomas's Hospital, get you in another five minutes there, and you'll have a, a, a cardiac catheterisation and a stent put in immediately, within an hour. Nowhere in the world would you get such good service. It's fantastic, but if you're elderly and you've got some abdominal pain, you've lost a bit of weight, you can't make the appointment to the GP. It'll take you six weeks. You then go. It's three months to get a to get an urgent CT scan of your abdomen. The whole thing just breaks down. We're great at some bits of it. That's where the NHS exists, as in uh, the, the, the dance in the, in the Olympics that we all remember vividly. But it doesn't exist for the majority of people. It's poor quality service. It's shabby service. And, you know, the NHS exists, but not equally for everybody. I think the other problem with the NHS is the age problem. So if I try to get medical insurance now, private insurance, I'd pay something like £8,000 a year. Some of the, the average age of the audience is about 25. Let's be generous here. So you're all 25. You, you get it for about £1,500. So the private insurers know this. So why don't I have to pay more premiums? It's
4: the organising principle of the NHS for the past 20 to 30 years has been one of efficiency. So that's why we've cut beds, that's why we've run the workforce down to as small as it can be to provide the minimum amount of care. And it's that principle of efficiency that we thought was quite a good thing, you know? We can provide the amount of care we need um, and it will hopefully cost us a bit less. Except as soon as you get a small demand surge every winter... People get infections. You get a pandemic, you get a big demand surge, you're a bit stuffed. Um, and maybe organising your healthcare service around a different principle would be better off. And so we talked about what Bismarckian systems, Europeans do. They all don't organise their healthcare system around efficiency, they organise it around capacity. The amount of empty beds in Germany is ridiculous. Um, and look, that will cost a bit more. Germany spend a lot more percentage of their GDP on health than we do. Um, it, it is a good place to be ill. Um, and I think this kind of cuts across with this question about who's providing healthcare. So I very much agree with Chris. I'm not really, don't really, I'm not really fussed who's funding it and what the mechanism of funding is as long as everyone's able to access it. But the provision question is interesting. Um, and should it be the state and should it be market and private providers? I think the state has a couple of advantages. I think the first is we're seeing a shift in public services for them to start connecting up a bit more. There's no point of thinking about the NHS and health in isolation. You've got to think about it with social care, you've got to think about it with policing and with housing. The government has responsibility for all of these things. And being able to connect the dots between public <laughs> services is the, the utopian ideal that everyone wants to do. Getting there is quite hard, but I think that gives the state an advantage over a private market, which would be focused entirely on healthcare. And right, I think... Can I hurry you a little bit now? I want
2: to get back out there. Yeah, yeah, of course, Sorry. of course, yeah, yeah. Sorry. yeah. yeah. Dolly, do you want to say something quickly? I'll
5: do to uh, too quick, only because touch upon uh, our area. So I wish I could. Uh, we should chat afterwards about your question because it is such a good one. But I would say, just back to it, you know, having your vision of how it should be, what it should be, and how that should manifest itself to compare then to what exists, I would find fascinating. Because having looked at what the legal requirements are, the moment you start looking into the documentation, it is so nebulous. And so I absolutely agree on it um on the uh, diet related disease uh, point or behavioral disease point um so our unit uh, at the mrc epidemiology unit is is concentrates on non-infectious diseases so we look at you know how easy is it to be healthy uh we look at diet related uh, risk factors physical activity related risk factors genetic risk factors all related to that uh point and so i obviously have to push back uh, to chris who we've had many discussions over the years on this subject um uh, you know, f- four out of the five main risk factors, top risk factors for healthy years uh, of life lost to death, disease, disability are related to our diets. So we ask the question how easy is it for us to enjoy a healthy diet, to even know what that is? And the, the answer is more often than not, no. And the amount of disinformation out there as well is, uh, I was just at an event this week on health claims. I mean, they're everywhere. The idea of something being healthy and then you find out it's not and you just think, how the hell are we supposed to navigate this world when we're basically being lied to by food companies? And for good reason for them, you know, they've got, oh, they've got shareholders to answer to and all of it. So how do we shape our food system to make it easy for everyone, regardless of background and in a non-stigmatised way? way to access a healthy life, and it is absolutely urgent because if anyone knows their diabetes related stats, we spend one point five million an hour on diabetes alone and that should be a wake up call because the vast majority of that is preventable type 2 diabetes, which again is highly related to our diet, so it is not easy to be healthy and we need it to be made as such and that 's where I come on to yes, the technicality point is. Difficult, and I'm trying to make the kind of concepts of implementation and evaluation and policy facilitation and policy sexy because if we concentrate too much on ideas and announcements, we'll have what we've had for the past 30 years, which is another 30 years of good ideas and announcements, but not the focus on actually seeing them through. So, how can you all join me and others who are interested in policy facilitation, you know, whether it's standing for election, joining, um, you know, local uh, CCGs, whatever it is? getting involved i would love to talk to anyone who's interested in doing that particularly those looking to stand for election as that is another thing i do uh, to help and i do hope that politics and policy making can become attractive and accessible to all of you
2: okay thank you very much okay more questions in the middle there please the guy with the glasses about the existential
7: crisis i actually think it's actually a real crisis uh if you look at the example of scotland scotland currently has the highest it's the drug capital of Europe, uh, the highest number of drug deaths in Europe. It currently has a a death rate of opioid addiction, which is double that in the United States. They talk about the opioid crisis in the United States. In Scotland, it's double that. The biggest killer of uh, drug addicts in Scotland is opioids. It's the drug given to them by the Scottish state to get them off the So if that's the health service, you can stick it it's a death <laughs> service. We've got to get away from this idea. Remove the health from it. We're not talking about it, health. It's kind of really interesting that at the height of a health crisis, a pandemic, the health service
11: goes to heights. We have a sensitivity
7: to the fact that Explain that, please. Can you explain that? Somebody please answer that question. Why? A health service that is there to protect us, to make us better, uh, when we need it, runs away, hides. GPs go, oh, I you protect us. We've... Something's gone wrong.
12: Okay, some more questions first, please. Uh, over here on the... On the... Um, all the panel have indulged in the traditional soppy sentimentality about NHS staff. I served on a board of a lung, leading London hospital, and yeah, there were huge issues with the NHS England, but one of the biggest challenges was the <coughs> doctors. Trying to get the doctors to reform, just asking them to stop using fax machines was absolutely impossible. They were so defensive of their own uh, area of expertise. Getting them, to, We had trouble in, in A&E, getting the orthopedic surgeons to spend a couple of hours in A&E to relieve the pressure? No, they wouldn't do it. And report after report of failings in the NHS highlights the casual lack of compassion, disorganisation. Now clearly there are heroes that are wonderful people in the NHS, but there are lots of people who would never get away with it in the corporate sector. They, they refuse performance management, they get away with, yeah, the sickness levels are enormous. And frankly, the number of disciplinary panels I sat on where people were taking the mickey. So, yeah, there are huge issues structurally, policy wise. But the staff, many of the staff are just not good. Now, maybe it's because they're badly managed, but doctors are the least corporate,
10: least reforming people I've ever come to. <laughs> Quite right, <it's laughs> <off. laughs> Edgar. Go there, yeah? Yeah.
11: That, that not only is the NHS facing lots of problems but it, it's also particularly ill-equipped to deal with them because it doesn't brook the sort of criticism that we're hearing today. Um, very often if you make a suggestion that is more radical, you automatically disqualify yourself from the debate because you're assumed to be uncaring. I mean we could typify uh, the uh, speaker from the I.E.A. is uh, an unthinking uh, capitalist, and that's it. It be business from the debate, and certainly from any social media debate on this critical issue. We well, have created a monster, I think, uh, Frenta And I, I just want to point to the record of one of our speakers today, uh, Professor uh, Carol Saporiti, confronting this monster and uh, the health fascism that I think it imbues uh, in leading. Some of the resistance on social media to the excessive lockdown policies on the grounds of health, he gave voice to those many of us who also feel that the lockdown contributed to depression, poor education, a smashing of incomes, not only in this country but across the world, from those remittances that have been cancelled by the depression. Um, and I think he did a very brave thing. One of a number of practitioners, a limited number of practitioners, that confronted the whole ethos that existed during lockdown, that it was beyond criticism for if you criticised lockdown, you didn't care about the elderly who might die otherwise from inadvertent coronavirus infection. I think we owe oh, it to ourselves and to the next generation to be very honest about this organisation that has managed to turn itself into the therapeutic equivalent of the military-industrial complex. It brooks no criticism, and if you dare, you're
13: a red under the bed. Any
11: <laughs> <laughs> okay, more
2: questions?
13: Yes, just to, to, to build on what was just said there, on the 19th of March two, uh, 2020, PHE Downgraded uh, SARS-CoV-2 to, to not a high infectious, a high consequence infectious disease. At that point, I was participating in um, specialised commissioning's destruction of the cancer services. Uh, my colleagues, who probably wouldn't say destruction, uh, well, my ex-colleagues, I should say, because I resigned as a result of it, were destroying uh, neuro and cardio as a result of it. Part of the NHS's role as state funded is rationalisations of service we are supposed to or historically risk cost benefits we looked at qualies we looked at the rationalisations of services and then throughout the last 18 months we just threw it all away it was almost as if it was so politicised that it was ideologically captured the NHS and it said we must serve COVID regardless everyone else was expendable
2: Thank you. you. Yep. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. Yes. Um, Chris, I
8: always enjoy hearing you talk. Uh, God, you are depressing. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm not saying for a second I disagree with anything you've said, though, because obviously if you look at actual health care outcomes, you know, tend tends to score among the lowest among each of the developed countries. And call me a reactionary but i do want my healthcare service to have good healthcare outcomes and um with of waiting times never has the word patient been more operative but the question i have for you really is i don't see any way the nhs is going to be reformed until the british public stop fetishizing it and idolizing it and i don't understand how the message that you put across today is going to get through to british people so i mean do you see any way at all in the near future that people will start to see the nhs perhaps for what it really is rather than an idealised version
2: of what they think it might be. Okay, um, I'd like to balance out the discussion a little bit by asking if anybody loves the NHS and wants to (laughs) say something against events. Oh, there's somebody here, yeah, okay. Um,
12: I mean, it was kind of building on the other question um, that was
0: just gone. Um, How feasible would it be to quickly change to a privatised system? So, wouldn't there be maybe a backlash from the public who, again, weren't informed about the potential issues with the NHS and the corruption, as you were saying, and it does have. So could that lead to maybe even more refusal of service or people not trusting the healthcare system in the same way because they feel as though they could be caught out and have to pay for, for their own health care? Um, it's sort of just, yeah, is it feasible?
2: OK, thank you. Um, does anybody on the panel want to come back quickly on any of those points? and I'll go back out again. Yeah, Chris.
6: No, it's not feasible at all. It's never going to happen. Never, no, certainly not in my lifetime, <laughs> and probably never. I mean, I, you, I told you, it's the thing we are most proud of more than anything else ever in British history. It's this a handful of people like me kind of you know, blowing darts at it every now and again, this enormous dinosaur of a thing. It's just, this carries on, uh, carries on going. Now, one day, like the dinosaurs, maybe it'll go extinct. I think the only, to kind of answer the previous question, the only thing that could lead to any kind of meaningful reform eventually, and it would take decades would be once people realize that it isn't underfunded and we are spending well in excess of 10% of GDP on this thing. Because for years, it has tended to have less money than other comparable systems. Which by the way, it should do without all the, if you believe in the the ideology behind it, because there's no profit-making companies sucking all this money out. So we should be able to fund it with less money than these more privatized systems. But now we are spending significantly more than than average and it's gonna keep on going up. Eventually that penny will drop. I mean people will continue to claim it's chronically underfunded for years but eventually people will realise that that is not true and then they might start asking questions like why are we paying so much tax for this thing I personally don't want to spend more than 10% of everything I ever earn on health at all I don't care who's providing it it's just not worth that much to me just make, um, you know make strong painkillers and sleeping pills available over the counter. I'll, I'll, I'll look after myself, you know. It's, I mean, even, even the Catholic Church at its height of power only took 10%. Um, so what's it going to get to? 15%? At some point it has to be too, uh, too, uh, too much. And if I can come back on the other part, I'm now going to say something pro-NHS, which is on this idea that it, it, the health service became a COVID service and they ignored everything else. Yeah, I agree with you, sir, that GPs should have been much quicker to come back to dealing with people face-to-face, and I'm not a big fan of GPs, just to your point. I don't like old, uh, old medics, but I do, I do think most of them do do, do a fine job. Uh, a lot of GPs perhaps are the exception to that. Um, but in, the general, in the general theme of it, look, we're not the only country that had a lockdown, and other countries had a lockdown for exactly the same reason, which is that their healthcare system would have been overwhelmed or collapsed uh, without them. If we'd have had twice as much hospital capacity, Boris Johnson probably was, would have delayed lockdown for a week until twice as many people had, had COVID. Um, this was something that faced every every country in, in much the same way. The reality is that COVID is a, obviously very highly infectious disease, but it's incredibly um, demand intensive on healthcare, particularly with ICU, and people are in there for quite a long time before they, they die or recover. So, the, they had to prioritise COVID. They had major problems with the fact that because it's infectious, they didn't want to have lots of uh, spread within the hospitals. They still got it, but they had to space lots of things out. They had to actually reduce the number of beds for all sorts of reasons out of green zone, amber zone, red zone, all this stuff. And they did it pretty quickly, and they did it as well as I think probably most healthcare systems did. I don't think the NHS dealt with COVID any better or any worse than comparable systems. But insofar as they, yes, they did have to delay people's treatment they don't have to turn away elective surgery but they weren't alone in that I mean that's what a healthcare system that is overwhelmed looks like just be grateful that it didn't actually collapse which is to say be grateful that there were still some intensive care beds for somebody who had a motorcycle crash or whatever. Thank you Chris.
3: So the doctors, very good point. I was a clinical director in West London for cancer. We had 42 consultants, and some of them were shitty. They were mostly arrogant. They were greedy. They wanted money in private practice. And they're unmanageable because of the way the doctor's contract is, stru- is structured. On the whole, of the 42... Thirty-eight were manageable, and they would do. We'd come to a consensus about how to go forward. But four of them were completely on their own, and no one could control it. Um, Nobody, the hospital management, couldn't do anything. And I think. And the orthopaedic surgeons are of course the worst because they can earn huge amounts of money down the road in the private hospitals, especially in London. So I'm afraid we've got to look at how the doctors are part of the system. There's no point blaming them. They've been allowed to get this since 1948. and. That's the problem. So structures have got to improve. No industry, let, let's take Tesco, would run it this way. So the managers at Tesco have the power to hire and fire. You don't in the NHS. And that is part of the problem. Why not fire the, the four difficult doctors and get four new ones? They're out there. And it, that's the problem we have.
4: Management control is really poor.
2: How did you understand yeah,
4: that? sure. So I, on, on that sort of the question that came up a couple of times about lockdown, NHS and hiding... I guess the only question I'll put back is, look, what do you think would have happened to cancer services and GP services if we didn't lock down, if we had more COVID infections? What, what would have happened then? Um, would the pressures in the NHS not have been higher? Um, on, on the question about doctors, the culture of laziness, innovation, individuals, so I'm a doctor in the NHS and God, it is hard being a doctor in the NHS. Um, it, it's so easy to point fingers at individuals. What like, think about the culture we work in. We're so stretched. We work insane hours. Of course we're gonna be grumpy sometimes. Uh, it's, it's, it's all good and well pointing fingers at consultants and doctors and individuals. It's not, you can keep pointing them forever unless you look at why on earth people just get so demoralized working in this system for decades. Um, and then sort of this question about healthy debate talking about what other ways we can deliver health good I think it's a good point. I think on that question, so I think a lot of people see this approach as, as privatization versus a public system. That's the wrong debate to have. It's not as simple as that, as Chris was alluding to. It's really not, do we want a private system or a public system? And I think the politics makes that conversation really hard. So actually, okay, well, why don't we think about private providers? What are the risks? Are we gonna end up over-medicalizing society? Probably. If you're incentivizing people to provide healthcare you're probably going to end up taking a lot more pills. You're definitely going to have a lot more health checks um, and a lot more random screening things that probably have no evidence behind it whatsoever. Already, the NHS does a lot of this sort of stuff. And if you want to be medicalized in your day-to-day life, go for it. But I think that is a really big risk of a more private-based provider system. Do you want to say anything,
8: Carl?
5: Just a final um, point again on so much of this is related to the kind of nebulous and it comes back to past article yesterday on the nebulous concept of culture and cultural, you know, there being negative cultures and then we can't say anything because it becomes uber politicized. And um, there seems to be a sort of feeling that change isn't that possible. I mean, Chris, it's never gonna happen. I find that personally really depressing, which is probably why I've ended up in a world trying to figure out what are the conditions where you can achieve massive policy change. And it is possible because there have been proof time and time again in history of massive policy change. So again, I I would urge people who are interested in being part of that or wanting to be an active part of that to step forward and think about how you can be part whether that is are you in the position currently uh, where you think you can have the most influence and where is that if if you're not already in that or if you're trying I'm interested in your experience of when you have been in these positions you know why haven't they worked is it because people are there battling and the culture is so toxic because we're constantly uh, at each other's throats and this is where I have ended up again in a space of absolutely obsessed with consensus building with collaboration with embracing diverse opinion as long as there is an ultimate goal to actually move towards meaningful change and if you're not interested in that and if you're just interested in the politics and the drama then I'm not interested either so if anyone else is like me and actually wants to be part of that policy change then I really again would welcome you to get in touch and as I'm studying the conditions of policy change then let's make it happen and when I say policy change I know that word is Sort of quite a lot of people say, What is policy? or I'm not in policy. Policy is about any uh, intent of action, anything that is a means to a change that you want to see. So don't think you're not in policy or you don't know anything about it. It's any kind of form of action.
2: Okay, um, right at the back, lady there. Just one
14: final question. Do you possibly think that demoralisation of the stock, the junior staff, might? prompt change. I mean, I have a daughter who is a junior doctor, and I know that what Patel says is absolutely correct. They've worked on their feet, they're not particularly well paid. They can't even arrange holiday. The HR department is so useless that if somebody says, I'm getting married next summer, <laughs> can I have two rooms on? They say, no, you'd better swap with a colleague. Um, that wouldn't happen in any commercial. Yeah. Surely at some point, Junior doctors are going to say enough. I mean, already people go off to New Zealand and Australia, and some of them, quite a few of them, don't come back because they get better treated over there. They get more respect. They can work reasonable hours. Why would they want to come back?
6: I've been able. able to come back the
2: last eighteen months.
7: Okay,
14: <laughs>
2: okay, at the
7: back, yeah. Um,
15: I think the moralisation conversation is really really
14: important can you
7: speak up a little bit please I'll struggle I'll try um, so I can come at it from
15: three perspectives because I'm a DP in D. Um, but the lack of very in there but the moralisation is such that our expectation and our horizon has absolutely narrowed So we just look at what can you do in the next 24 hours to make things better and your engagement with anything else need to be reduced and I think that's really dangerous that clinicians are sort of separated out from that whole bigger picture I can tell you as well about being patient and going in with penicillin to A&E nobody gives nobody a shit not, to not to find points on it to be in hospital for three days and feel utterly kind of like you're getting our needs and our pain and to look at other people in the ward who are not doctors, who can't articulate their concerns and when they're to be completely bothered. It's just shocking the normalization at that level. But I, I also have a policy role in, in, in GM and I work in um, trying to improve services for people with dementia. And I can't tell you, it's like uh, it's the bureaucracy is such that... They've just forgotten what we're there for. Everyone's just kind of going around in a little loop of ticking boxes. And that whole kind of vision of what this is, what we're trying to achieve, is completely absent at every single level. And people are just trying to drive. I don't understand why that's happening. Um, but I do think that don't stop and think about by any vision, you um, can't understand what's happening in the system as well.
7: It's
2: striking that um, outside this room, the discussion of the NHS isn't really being had in this way, um, mm. because politicians are scared that people have, people love the NHS, and if mm. you start talking about it, you'll you'll come across badly and lose votes. But it, it's the, <laughs> I'm struggling to try and get some more positive comments about the NHS in this room, <laughs> but I'll try. You don't have to be positive, but um, yes, at the front here. Um, um, I don't want
0: to add make this um, discussion just demoralize NHS staff ranting about their day-to-day life. But I did want to add another perspective, particularly pertaining to the private versus public issue, if you can call it that, um, that does actually praise the NHS in some ways. Um, So I think privatization is the biggest solution, but also the biggest problem. Um, So as um, Mr. Sloane has earlier said, um, it's the most, and and everyone else as well, it's the most frustrating place to work, the NHS. We had to crowdfund um, to buy a microwave for our department I set up a PayPal pool, everyone put in a couple of pounds to buy a microwave because we, we weren't able to get a 50-pound microwave um, for the, well, I think it was even cheaper. Uh, we have two toilets for 50-ish staff, um, which never has hand soap, uh, in a hospital where where infection rates are going through the roof, but I have to, we have to buy our own hand soap. You know, things like that day-to-day that have just become so normalized that when I speak to my friends um, that don't work for the NHS, I'm, I'm shocked at, at the kind of um, you know basic level of humanity that they receive. Um, the p- department that I now work for has become partially privatised and by that I mean very silently privatised because as we all know there's a huge emotional tie to the NHS. If you're very vocal about how different departments are becoming privatised people will be in uproar. So um, the department that I work for on the surface appears fully NHS but when you look into it there's a lot of different people with fingers and various pies. Um, There's a huge lack of transparency before um, in the NHS and now there's even less transparency. Um, The NHS has a lot of day-to-day problems but in the long run, you also get a lot of benefits. Um, Again, from my own personal experience, um, uh, you can often, when places become privatized, you get a lot of those um, benefits removed and also a lot of the day-to-day problems aren't fixed either. Um, It's kind of like a class they put on where they're like, oh, here's a, I don't know, very arbitrary sort of benefit but, but you remove a lot of the wonderful things like maternity leave, generous maternity leave, um, pensions, um, generous annual leave, etc. Um, the sickness rates are appalling. Um, staff don't care a lot of the time but the reason they don't care is because the system breaks you down and you become very jaded. So this is sounding very negative but I, I think that the NHS is a lot of wonderful things, um, a lot of problems, but I don't think privatisation is the solution either. I think that will bring even more problems to the or any problematic system.
2: Okay, yeah, the guy in the middle there,
11: yeah. Um, so the question's coming up, a lot who should be running the NHS, and I think the pretty obvious answer is healthcare professionals. Um, and there's a lot of disdain on the panel about politicians, and you have this debate, either complete private position or absolutely no movement at all. And particularly, it seems to be Dr Patel saying we need to disengage Politics from the NHS, but how are we actually going to go about doing that? If it if it is a public service, even if it's even if it is partially privatised, or we have a insurance scheme, how are we going to disengage politics from healthcare?
7: Okay,
2: thank you. Any other hands? Yes, the guy right back with the, with the paper in the air. Yeah. Right. Um, I
1: think we can cut to the chase. Um, first question: Who in the room? has lived and had health care on the continent. That's a big problem, because people don't know how good it is. Very few people. I've lived in Germany, my son's living in Switzerland. As a comparison with the NHS, I arrived in Germany on a waiting list for minor surgery with no particular date. I went to my German GP, in 48 hours I've had that operation, and I've been fine since. We also had gynaecological primary care for my wife. We had pediatric primary care for my children. Perfectly normal. It may have something to do with the much better levels of um, infant mortality on the continent. So we we don't need to do thinking. We don't need to do policy. What we need to do is go to Switzerland, go to Australia, and say, what do they do there? Do that. It would be politically very acceptable, I think, to say, instead of our doctors going to Australia and experiencing this system, we'll bring the Australian system to Britain and so they can have all those benefits in Britain. And a key benefit in Australia is, you go to any health care provider you want, you get treated, they send in a bill, the government you. you you aren't bothered by it. And the doctors only get paid for what they do rather than being on a generous of where for all we know they're sitting in offices now playing bridge online and making you wait six weeks to see them. So if they want to get paid, they have to demonstrate they've done work, like in Australia. There's no politics about them getting the Australian system. There's just too much talk. And not enough of that practical thing. Who's making a good job? The Germans, the Swiss, the Australians. Copy that. End of
2: point. Okay, thank you. We've, got, we've only got fifteen minutes left, I so I want so the to come back very, very, very briefly. So I'm going to go back out again once
5: more. I just want to come directly back to that. You have absolutely uh, just uh, yeah. shown as an example of my issue with the word policy, because so many people don't feel that it is what it is, or have a very strange perception of it. What you have just described, so, Sir, is policy: <laughs> going out to another country or using a case study and then looking at how do you implement it in the case of the UK or England in this case with the NHS, is policy. So my problem is probably go away and find another word to explain what policy is and use that. for it's action, you know, how it's making change happen and any idea like that is a policy and it's just that so often than not, as you say, it's all talk and we don't actually see it through. But if you want to create the conditions, again, to turn Germany in uh, situation into the, into the English context, I would be absolutely game for exploring how to make that happen and getting on with it and testing it out. Okay. Does
0: anybody else
4: Yeah, I'll come in. Uh, so the, the, the problem I have with the, what are they doing in Australia, Germany and Switzerland is that they're doing very different things. Um, Switzerland is not a brilliant healthcare system. The inequalities in access to healthcare in Switzerland are insane. If you're poor in Switzerland, it's pretty hard to get good healthcare. Um, and I think that comes back to what's good about the NHS. England, or the UK, is a country that has really wide health inequalities. The gap between the rich and poor in terms of how long you probably get to live, 10 years, is quite big. But it doesn't have massive health care inequalities, so there are variations. But in general, being able to access surgery or care you need, there's not huge variations there between middle class and poorer people. There is, if you have private insurance, it's slightly different. So I think that is the upside of it. Um, and the other thing was who should run the NHS, I think I've been, that's not actually what I think, I actually don't think clinicians should run the NHS, I don't think they have an idea, any idea how to run the NHS. I think local politicians should run the NHS. If you want to make the service more accountable, plug it into politics. Um, it would change the political economy around the NHS, but it also make it a lot more accountable. Um, I think for me that's, that's what I would, I would do. Um, people that think in systems are people that we need to, to run the NHS.
6: The point about you no, know health yeah, professionals yeah. should be running the NHS. Yeah. I don't think they should. I mean, it was part of the,
3: I mean, that,
6: that was part of the 2012 Lanzarie-France when a GP-led healthcare. It turned out GPs didn't really want to be messing around ordering um, bits of machinery and, and so on. And they weren't very good at it when they tried. I think you need managers to manage it. Not as many managers as the NHS have, but managers working in a competitive market. That brings up your point and your point, sir. What's the difference? Well, the, the, there's more competition in Germany and Switzerland than these other places. Most OECD countries have 100% access to healthcare, which is to say free at the point of use. Most most of the rest have 99.9%. America is a massive outlier in this respect. And it, it does require privatization. I mean, there isn't really a, a, a viable alternative because it works both for the staff and it works for the patients. So, from your point of view, you can go round sick of working for this company. They've got no soap in the bloody toilets. They've got, they, they, they haven't even got a microwave. You're not allowed to use a toaster. I'll go elsewhere. And either that company is going to have to buck its ideas up or, or go bust. Uh, and it works for patients as well because, again, you have choice. It might not be not down your road. I mean, there's still, still a geographical limits, but we're not a big country. If someone says you need to go to York to get your your, your, your surgery, but you can have it tomorrow rather than waiting for three, three months where you are, most people will go, that's, that's fine. That, that works. And it is what works. There really isn't any alternative. All this stuff about, oh, internal markets and reform, blah, blah, blah. We've been waiting 70 years for the right government to come in with the right uh, amount of funding, and it never happens, right? We're now overfunding it compared to other systems. We've tried every approach possible. Every different political party's had a go at this. None of them have got it right. So maybe it's actually the system that's broken. We need to change
4: it. Well, except privatised public services in the UK aren't in the best state, are they, Chris? Whether it's public transport (laughs) or social care, it hasn't quite improved the quality of... of Well, it has.
2: Okay. Let me move across Carol,
4: do you want to say <laughs> anything? No. Okay. Sorry. I we'll want to get back out there quickly, and then we can. Yeah. Tonight,
15: I was a teacher uh, in my professional life, um, and I'm just thinking about who runs, who used to run the schools, which were <coughs> our state teacher-funded schools, and local government used to run schools, and there was this endless debate about raising the level of achievement in schools run by local authorities and I think it's still going on but then I think the mould has broken to some extent where free schools came in and different forms of organisation and they have proved really successful and I think if national politicians run the schools you get the central sort of political problems and you get the same thing with local government and politicians running the schools. And so I'd just like to say that um, I don't think the local politicians are going to do any better job. And right. There's the schools that are run with a manager, you know, focus on that school, there's someone here has the outstanding school in West London. Um, actually,
4: that would be a useful
2: thing to look at how other BLM, public services, education, are managed um, teachers. Okay, thank you very much. Um, any more questions or points from the floor? No, I think i have exhausted you all. Great. Okay, so um, final remarks now, please. And we'll go in reverse order, if I remember what order that is. I, I believe first. Uh,
6: Thanks. Um, Yes, you
2: can, feed yeah, you, the, can, you, can, you can respond to those I will, comments, I will, and you'll I'll yeah.
6: uh, well, just respond to my, my fellow panellists here for a second, uh, saying that the privatised industries are not particularly good. Well, it, the ones that exist in a competitive market, I would say, are. I think companies like Jaguar and British Airways, which were privatised a long time ago, do very well. Uh, the ones that are in kind of natural monopolies, not so much. But healthcare is not a natural monopoly, it never has been, um, and it shouldn't, be, uh, it shouldn't be seen as such. Um, on the GP surgeries, yes, they're, priva- they're privatised. Is this a, a, a chink in my armour? I would say not. Are you, all, are you aware of the 8am receptionist scam? Uh, this is very widespread. I know my, my GP surgery does it. So you ring up because you're ill, you want to see a doctor, and they lie to you immediately. This is your first contact with the NHS, is them lie to you. Um, and they say they haven't got anything for four weeks or so, and you say, well, that really isn't soon enough. Um, and they tell you in kind of a conspiratorial tone that if you ring up tomorrow at 8am, they might be able to squeeze you in. Are you familiar with this? Yeah, yeah right. Um, and so you ring at 8am, and what happens? The line's engaged. Because they told everybody else to do exactly the same thing. And this assumes that you remember to do it, and it assumes that you're awake. I mean, you're ill. You might, you might not want to wake up at 8am to ring up the doctors. Eventually, if you just keep ringing ringing ringing, like in the old days of trying to get Glastonbury tickets or something, eventually you get through. And they say, yeah, you can come in at half Um And it was only quite recently I found out why this was. Do you know why it is? It's because the government has a target, which they've given all the GP surgeries to meet, of a certain number of same-day appointments. You see how this works? So, yeah. the yeah. the idea is that, they, that you ring up on the day, they can fit you in the same day. They can't really do that. Uh, they can't meet the target. The easiest way to do it is to get their customers to ring the first thing in the morning, then they squeeze them in. Now, that's the problem. Okay, so they're, they're, they're private, but it's in... It's incredibly centralised in practice because you're not really the customer. The NHS is the customer of all these of all these GP surgeries, and the customer in this case is telling um, telling the the GP surgeries what to do, and that's how you run things when you haven't got a price mechanism to allocate resources efficiently. You have to use queuing and and centralised targets, and when you bring in targets, there's always a way of getting around them, and it's not to the consumer's advantage. So in this case, as in so many instances with the NHS, it ends up with you waiting for the NHS, whereas in most normal systems, the healthcare provider is waiting for the customer.
2: Okay. um, Dolly.
5: Um, Thank you all. This is a fascinating discussion, and uh, it's so refreshing to hear people talking about... The kind of uh, nuances and um, and both sides of the coin when when it comes to this whole issue, um, I want to come back to my kind of original point and the point I'm making repeatedly throughout, which is just a, a call out to um, shift the focus away from just debating always the what the ideas. You know, what can be done better? Is that actually the best way that we can do it? Towards the how, how do we make it actually happen? How can we be part of that? And to, again, invite you all to be part of that um, change if you uh, are interested in being so. And to think about getting involved in that way. If you don't like politicians, then become one. <laughs> and let's change, change the system together, because my word is there a common thread on the need for a, a new culture, a culture of um, depoliticization which is very, very hard, but we can do it if that is your ultimate ambition to do it. And it sort of starts with us that we practice what we preach in that. So get involved, and I hope that we can not be having this conversation again this time next year. Thank
4: you. Yeah, I'll, I'll come back to that comment about the education paradox. I think it's a really interesting comparison to compare health services and educational services, probably the two biggest, they are the two biggest public services. And I guess what you see in education. And there's really an interesting IFS analysis that came out, I think, this week about investment in state schools versus investment in private schools. You've seen this chasm between two different parts of society in terms of how you educate your children. And that chasm is widening at an incredible pace. You see the investment in a kid that goes to state school per head versus a kid that goes to private school. From, from about 2010, the lines go a bit like that. And that's kind of crazy. Um, and we're probably on a similar trajectory in health services. Um, and if we don't do anything about it, that's where we're heading. Now that might be where you want it to head. Fair enough, normative value statement. It's not where I would want it to head. But I think that is something to keep in mind. Um, and there was a sort of a random comment about communitarianism and caring, um, which was a bit left field, but I quite liked. Um, and I think it is quite relevant to this thing. And it kind of connects up with where, what kind of society are we living in? How important is sort of caring for one another? and individuals thinking about themselves as individuals and individuals thinking about themselves as a group in society and I think that Comes back to a lot of this what sort of the more philosophical part of this conversation um, And how we go about it And then the last point I want to make is we need to stop thinking about healthcare in isolation of health The NHS is a healthcare service, but it is maybe 10 to 20% of what determines your health and thinking more thoughtfully about public health and the trade-offs we're willing to make and the trade-offs we're not willing to make to improve the health of the population. Sick populations, not sick individuals, is a really interesting and important debate to have. The final word then, okay. So why do poorer,
3: less well-educated people do much worse than the NHS than people like you, intelligent, educated, and forward-thinking, because it's a very complex system to manipulate, to navigate through. At Hammersmith we covered Windsor patients, ladies with breast cancer, and we covered Harlesden patients with breast cancer. The Windsor patients got everything, and there was nothing different about what we were providing. They just asked for it in a polite and reasoned way. Not by getting aggressive and shouting at the receptionist, it does happen in GP surgeries. So I think that's the problem. Being a public system doesn't mean it's, it's not full of inequity. And I think the way forward is to make it a consumer system, like the companies I've mentioned, Ryanair and Vodafone and all that, so people can access it easily. No receptionist blocking access. That's my final word thank you.
7: thank you thank you very much
5: thanks again for listening to the battle fest podcast you can support us by subscribing sharing and leaving us a review check back next week for more recordings from the battle of ideas festival 2021